from that movie from the 80s where he has sex with that old lady Dave 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 Balbo the moon (laughs) we're going by the way oh okay welcome to Zyma guys ahoy hoy we are Bob and Larry Mm -hmm. and we're here to talk to you about some of the stranger stories of beer and fermentation throughout history you can find us on all of your favourite podcasting platforms, as well as all good and bad social media, at Pod. This is episode 23, Beer Street, Hanoi. Larry, we, uh, we touched on your time in Germany yeah. a few episodes back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were probably very aware of the uniqueness of German beer culture. Of course. Uh, you talked I'm about not a savage. Uh, you talked about uh, going to Oktoberfest in a in a small town. Oktoberfests. Various Oktoberfests. Yeah. Do you have any other in your travels across Europe and the US eye-opening experiences with very specific niches of beer culture? Well, certainly the first time I went to Brussels, I went there knowing that they had like 2,500 different kinds of beers available in Belgium. Mm-hmm. I had already had my fair share of uh, Belgian beers. That was my gateway. How deep into... in your beer life? I that was one life. of the uh, eye-opening moments. I was mm-hmm. less than a year into my journey into beers that were outside of, you know, the mm-hmm. normative... Uh, you're not a professional. Euro lagers. No, 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 no. no, you're, no. you're just discovering... I'm, you've I'm had a just IPA? discovering. Uh, I had not had an IPA at okay, that point, okay, I cool. think. Or maybe I may have had the punk, but at the same time, the first crafty bar type of thing that opened up in Tallinn uh, they were it was James of Budal fame here mm-hmm. in Tallinn this would have famous been drink beer bar. person this was drink bar mm-hmm. in the old mm-hmm. town and you know their thing was that a lot of Belgian stuff some Finnish stuff and then punk IPA and a couple assorted few brewdog beers but the Belgians were like my gateway into be- beers just being so different and not what I know from these Blue mm-hmm. and red cans from Saku and Alakok, basically. James and hadn't bought us cask beer yet. No. No. <laughs> that, that's still like... Incredibly new. We, 13, we have, 14 years in the future. Yeah, we, the have a, we have cask beer in Tallinn now. But James brought us like the first IPA. And I know a lot of the Estonian brewing scene where the punk IPA was the deciding factor. Mm-hmm. It was one of them. But I would say my biggest influence early on was the Belgian beers. And then I had my first option or opportunity to go to Brussels. That was definitely one of those that just kind of like... And then some years later, I was already well, well, well into beer. I was not yet involved in any of the breweries, but Mm. I went to the States for the first time and I would go to the local shop. It's a high-end shop. It's got like a growler station in it. Right. It's got a couple dozen different kinds of six packs I, I do remember the uh, introduction of the growler back home as well I, I was so enamored with the idea of getting a growler because it just it, it was such a novel idea <laughs> the shop in like 2014 when I first went to the states that was the first time I had seen like a growler station mm. especially one in a shop you know that the place had the guys in like 
or the breweries that have really good distribution in the States. So you have your Lagunitas, you mm-hmm. have your Stone, you have your, have your Sierra Nevadas, but that's, that's when like everything about beer changed for me. I got like absolutely obsessed. And then less than a year later, I was already involved in my first brewery project. So these two experiences in beer. It didn't take long. It didn't take long at all. Mm. From you my just first, decided that this is what you're doing with your life now. From my first Belgian beer to my first IPA to like getting super inspired by the Belgians and then getting super inspired by the Americans. Also, the same summer, I realized that from where we're usually staying in the States, uh, like less than 10 miles, there's a shop called Beers of the World. Mm-hmm. They boast a selection of 3,500 beers. I've even found the Saco Original in that shop. Oh, of course. Right. I have the picture <laughs> as proof. But they did have 3,500 beers and they would do like mix your own six packs. That was also my uh, my first bit of Estonian beer. I think I got a Saku Ice, actually. And that was... Uh, Not a great welcome. Yeah, that was, um, that was via this... Uh, Baltic importer mm-hmm. in in Melbourne. He he didn't have a great selection, but it was it was your uh, Sezu and um, Eldaris. Okay. And uh, Saku. Okay, so and, the Carlsberg Group. Yeah, yeah. And uh, well, my my wife was also uh, working in the bar as well, mm-hmm. and she's Estonian, so she insisted that uh, maybe some Saku should should make its way in. Even though it's a pretty horrible beer. <laughs> yeah, but everyone Especially everyone travels across the world. Yeah, everyone had a go of it. That guy didn't last long. I think it, six months later he was he was more or less gone. His work visa ended, and yeah. he had to come back. <laughs> he was he was back in Riga. You haven't had the pleasure of uh, going through. Asia just ne- yet never no so say like uh you know one of the one of the real eye-opening beer culture things for me was first in Japan mm-hmm. uh and these were the tiny tiny bars in Tokyo the uh, obviously space bit of a premium on space in Tokyo mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's an enormous city and uh these these places are just so small and I remember going into one that was a it was an American bar like American craft beer bar they had a great selection of beers but um, it was almost cartoonishly what the Japanese kind of idea of an American bar would be. So, you know, the guy had a cowboy hat on and was dressed oh. as like a, like a, so king, it wasn't like a, a king of the hill Texan. <laughs> it, it wasn't like a craft beer place where they cosplay American hipsters. It was, it was a craft beer place where they were cosplaying Texas. Oh boy! And you know he's like, "Howdy, partner." I'm, was obesity part of very, the cosplay? In a very uh, thick Japanese accent, which I'm not going to mimic, but you can imagine that he he gave me the howdy, partner, and he, he tipped his hat to me, and it was it was great fun. But, Did he um, do like the guns into the air yeah. as well? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, what I what I found so crazy about this bar was one. Uh, I was introduced to the standard of the ten liter keg mm-hmm. in uh, in Japan, and again, just as a as a space saving. So they they had all of these like tiny kegs kind of stacked up against the back of the bar. So I, I, I remember the first time. Uh, now I'm so desensitized to them because we usually have some in stock. But mm-hmm. when I first saw those, I was the, so enamored by them because the cute they're so little keg, cute. yeah, uh, especially like the baby key kegs. They look so adorable. I oh, know they're just these like squat. Just little slap things. some googly eyes on yeah. them, and uh, <laughs> I will like a grown ass man's like teddy bear. <laughs> <laughs> Take him around, and um, there was about six people that could fit in this bar, and 
there was only space at the bar count. And um, the, the bit that really got me was that the toilet was next to the front door. So if anybody of those six people needed to use the bathroom, particularly if it was the sixth person right at the back of the bar, mm-hmm. everyone had to get up and go outside so that the <laughs> one guy could go and use the... That's not great for a beer bar. Well, I mean, it was worse. Once the gates of P have been opened, it's <laughs> then everyone's gonna be just like, gonna be a, like just a back it's and a carousel. forth. Yeah. It's a carousel, exactly. But I, I loved those those places, and I thought it was just such a that unique looking. That sounds so to... incredibly horrible to me. <laughs> that you is would get, the, you and, would get really claustrophobic. And this is this what's the word? Antithesis. That I'm of like so surprised I got that. I'm proud of you. I thought you were just stuttering. I. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to embarrass myself another time trying to pronounce that. <laughs> I will practice that at home in the comfort of my own mm-hmm. bathroom. Uh, but that is the exact opposite of what I'm looking for in a bar. It doesn't have any... A place where you don't have to get up and go outside if someone needs to use the bathroom. But also, I again, we have already touched upon how much I enjoyed COVID. Mm-hmm. The 1.8 meter, six feet rule, perfect. This well, yeah, I, I imagine the two meter rule in this place would allow only one customer, and that's perfect. And then that would be breaking the rule with the bartender. Yeah, because there, there would I mean, be no that's, points that's in fine. this bar where you could be two meters. Self service, even self better. Self service, yeah. Have you ever been to a self service bar? Yeah, uh, very recently actually. It was the one in Riga. Yeah. Um. Ah, oh, jeez, I. Cannot for the life of me remember what it's called, but they they do have the the kind of untapped screen behind the the taps, and you, you go and press I'm, a button. Okay, I only went in for the one beer, but uh, it, it was, and then you you kind of had a a docket that you then took to the bar. And I've been to one in San Diego, and you mm-hmm. get like a bracelet, and, uh, oh, and that you, you would uh, scan, mm-hmm. and then it would weigh you, and it would just like oh, so magically <laughs> be on your basically pouring was per weight yeah yeah, yeah. because you can't uh you can't allow for people pouring badly and having no head who would have thought they've got a loophole yeah exactly british people who didn't <laughs> want head on their beer or just people that I mean, have worked a linder at That's a festival and that don't want to refill every 26 seconds yeah. <laughs> uh but professionals i.e uh anyway but of course, the, uh, the, the one that I want to bring us to, and probably one of the most unique beer experiences I've personally had, is Beer Street in Hanoi. Mm-hmm. Um, Tahien Street, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Tahien? Is, uh, Tahien. T-A-H-I-E-N. Mm-hmm. Uh, colloquially known as Beer Street. Is it like our deli skivi where you have... Like a number of breweries and brewery tap rooms. Well, uh, no, it's it's more of this very tight alleyway, and that, that that's what was one of the the really surprising things about it, is that uh, there are just bars lining this street. I th- it was about five hundred meters worth of street. It's not a not a big thing. It's a bit mm-hmm. of an alleyway. All of the bars they kind of spill out onto the road, mm-hmm. and that road still has traffic going down it. There are there are guys coming past on their their mopeds, you know, like. Kind of zooming in between the are rickshaws a thing there? The, these wouldn't fit. It's it's all the the Vespa. Okay. So the the guys are like kind of darting in and out of people. You know, there's there's a couple of inches between your elbow and a scooter coming right. by you. There's uh there's a lot of action. There's a lot of people with um if you can imagine those like I guess you'd call it a yoke, the the bar that people put across their shoulders. 
Okay. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, got the, it's got the baskets hanging on either side. So, so there's, uh, there's people kind of marching through with those. They're selling, uh, selling food from, the, from their baskets. I wonder if like, they ever get into a little bit of a fight and one of them goes like, What are you yoking about? <laughs> Why are you yoking? You got to be yoking. Gotta be yoking me. Uh, and it's it's uh, it's just pandemonium. And what uh, what is being served there is called beer hoy. It's uh, mm-hmm. claims at least to be the cheapest beer in the world, and it's really popular amongst backpackers. We're talking about seven thousand to ten thousand Vietnamese dong, which is <laughs> about uh, yeah. Get get your giggles out. I will. You <laughs> said dong. We're we're talking about thirty to fifty cents per pint. Okay. Uh, 50 cents at a higher end place, 30 cents at a, at a lower end place. Uh, I have no frame of reference. Mm-hmm. What would a punk IPA cost? Oh, I did go into some craft beer bars. It was not not expensive, but definitely considerably more expensive than this. We're, we're probably talking about four euro for a, a pint of IPA at, mm-hmm. say, Pasture Street Brewing mm-hmm. versus, a, versus 50 cents for a, a pint of beer hoy. Is it and, any um, good, and does it give you diarrhea? Well, we're gonna we're gonna get to all of that. The, these places they they run the full kind of gamut of beer service. Mm-hmm. There are restaurants there that that have full tap systems, um, but quite a lot you have kegs just kind of balanced in the gutter, or sitting on top of a plastic chair or a table. Uh, some places don't even have taps on their kegs. They they kind of have a siphon system that they that they pour these beers. Is it like open top kegs? No, <laughs> there is. I'm not imagining key kegs here. They're not key kegs. They're they're all steel. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, one of the things that uh, I learned, and this is a hot tip for anyone else who goes to Beer Street, is that um, when I walked in at the front end of Beer Street was a large police van mm-hmm. with about seven cops just kind of standing around it. It became clear to me later that actually it's illegal for the bars to spread out onto the street. Uh-huh. So uh, there's a number of these, if you can imagine the like, you know those really brightly neon-colored plastic chairs and tables that you have for kids? Yeah, sure. Yeah, they've usually got some Pokemon on them or something. Right, so sure. they, they're, just, they're just everywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, the police... Ultra tiny? They're tiny. They're tiny. Your your uh, your knees are touching your elbows when you when you're sitting down so on the street there. Literal like kid kindergarten sure. things. Yeah, exactly. And just l- tiny little tables that you can get your uh, smoked chicken feet and all sorts of. Yeah, But it only fits like on. one meal and and one maybe beer. maybe two pints. Okay. For for you and who you're sitting with, uh, but as it turns out, the cops will uh, randomly conduct a raid, and uh, the the sirens will go off. You'll, you'll hear the, the voice coming over the megaphone and everyone just kind of gets out of the way. The etiquette, which is something I really wish someone had told me before I sat down, was that you don't just get up and get out of the way. You get up and you take your chair and your table. Mm. Because if you leave your chair and your table, the police will confiscate it. So you so had the I, places... I made a bit of a party come. foul, yeah. The, 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 uh, the Did table and the chair it? was... Hey, Did they make you pay for it? No, but I, I did leave a bit of a tip for uh, for messing that up. Like a punk IPA's worth. Yeah, well, yeah. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's an insane place and probably one of the most eclectic and and wild places that you'll ever sit down to have a pint 
as we've kind of discussed in uh, previous episodes that have taken us to Asia, the history of Asian brewing and drinks is largely rice-based. Mm-hmm. Beer is not something that comes to Asia until Europeans start to move through. Sure. The history of Vietnamese beer starts with uh, French Indochina. Mm-hmm. So this encompasses parts of China, Laos, Cambodia, uh, Siam, as mm-hmm. it was called at the time, and Vietnam. Um, more importantly, it covers uh, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh, which at the time is Saigon. Unlike French Algeria, this isn't really a French colony so much as it is a like loose connection of trade ports. Is this the era of... Yeah, I think it. this is exactly the era of, uh, you know, where one of my favorite terms ever comes from, the Cobra mm. effect. When the French had like relatively a loose grip over Vietnam, they had a massive snake problem and then they paid. Oh, I uh, know uh, the Cobra uh, effect. Yes, they, yes, they yes. paid for every snake, but people figured out that for every snake, they even baby ones, they give money. So they started breeding, breeding them. Breeding the snakes. I had heard like this story. Massive actually. effect. So, uh, and once the French figured it out, they stopped paying. And so people released all the Cobras into the wild. Yeah. And in the end, that's the Cobra effect. I'm sorry, that, that was a completely no, that, random sidebar. It but, makes total sense, though. Um, so, yeah, like. It doesn't make any sense in the context. Uh, so French Algeria has a fairly large French population. It, it, it has been effectively colonized. Mm-hmm. The colonialism in in this part of Indochina, it's a relatively small French population that actually stays there and lives there. We're talking about 30,000 people, which is like mm-hmm. 0.2% of the total population of the region. So how loose is the grip? It's, it's pretty tight around the ports. Mm-hmm. But the expanded area, I mean, there, there is still a lot of colonial devastation, obviously. None of it's good. Never <laughs> but, is. Uh, but in terms of like population of French colonists, mm-hmm. it's, it's quite small compared to other colonies. All right. Um, their time as, uh, or their time in charge is brief, but pretty eventful. So uh, Probably also pretty brutal. And very brutal. The, the French were not great. Never are. No. Still aren't. So the, their incursions into the region... Never had a French listener or anyone from France. So we can, we can loudly and proudly <laughs> say, fuck France. Uh, the, their only positive thing in the last like 600 years is Gujira. Oh, I didn't know that. I don't think there's anything, anything, else, anything else of any value. They did also provide Vietnam with the baguette. Well, giving, giving us the barn me, which I would argue is the king of sandwiches. I have to agree on that one. Mm-hmm. Okay, so two things the French did. But really, positive. The, the French invented something and the Vietnamese perfected it. It's like Gujira by, has by moved adding to the States, really by nice the, pork and uh, pickles and uh, a bunch of hot sauce. And also, Gujira resides in New York now, so one could argue the French gave them Gujira. But um, yeah, so they. The French kind of start their incursions around the early to mid 1800s. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's like a series of regional conflicts that go on, various insurgencies and, and people rebelling against the French incursion. And uh, burning bishops. Basically, the, the entire thing collapses after World War II. That, that vacuum helps us along to the Vietnam War. 
Sure, of course. I mean, the French still stayed on in a limited capacity. There is, yeah. Like, there's an undeniable kind of colonial uh, legacy mm-hmm. that, that exists. If, if you've, if but you've it's been not to, quite a Hong Kong situation. No, no, not at okay. all. I mean, if you've been to a lot of these cities, if you've been to Hanoi, Ho Chi Minh, uh, Phnom Penh... Way to rub it in, buddy. You clearly know I haven't. Yeah, no, you have not. Uh, but, Maybe you know, you imaginary pub. Maybe the people in the imaginary pub have been to Vietnam. I forget that. And have witnessed that, like, a lot of the architecture, like, is from this colonial period. There, there are there are things that hang around. And as we said, there's, you know, things like the banh mi pho, even, and uh, coffee hang around. So the, the first brewery that we get uh, is in Saigon, and it's opened by a name named Victor LaRue. Mm-hmm. Uh, LaRue, you might recognize if you've uh, seen on Untapped. LaRue is still available. Oh, wow. It's uh, not from this particular brewery, but uh-huh. one of the main. But go-to it's like a brand. Beers. The brand in Vietnam is called LaRue. Who owns it? That would probably be Heineken. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was in 1875, and it's, it's largely there for the French population, the settlers and the soldiers. They're making traditional European style beer to sell to the local Europeans. Funny enough, uh, even in the greatest beer run, Mm -hmm. uh, Jackie mentions that like uh, when he went to collect his per diem from the French uh, shipping company owner, who then in when, you know, the siege of Vietnam began, uh, fucked off, but he's a Vietnamese butler. Mm-hmm. stayed back and uh, they became very friendly and uh, the butler would in- invite him in- inside and offer him French beers. All right. And I'm guessing that's probably a LaRue. It, that, it may this be is LaRue. something I need yeah. to look up. Uh, yeah, Good thing I spent like two minutes of our podcast talking about it if I just have to look it up anyway. Yeah, and, and it is still around. You can you will find this in, in supermarkets all, all okay. over the country. Any good? It's, it's a Heineken beer. Mm-hmm. So a pale euro lager. A pale euro lager. This brewery lasted up until uh, the Vietnamese independence. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was taken over by a brewery company called Sabaco, which is the uh, Saigon Brewing Company. Uh, so Sabaco, you will probably recognize as, as a lot of the bigger beers of South Vietnam. So You, 30, you assume a lot. Oh yeah, maybe maybe you will. You might have even seen them here in some of those beers of the Sing world shops. Not Sing Tao, but uh, say thirty three export uh, beer Saigon. Um, currently, Sabaco is owned by Taibev. Actually, yeah, Saigon. I I know because uh, mm. my favorite fa 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 place. We say fa, fa but like fa is the. I think the real way of saying it, but when you say it, everyone looks at you and you say foe and then everyone goes, oh, you mean far. So okay. I'm just, I'm so just giving up on... that's why you went with the FIFA foe. Uh, I'm giving up on connotation. I know Vietnamese uh, My favorite place for that food in Helsinki, mm-hmm. they have Saigon. And right, that would make sense. There's finally one that I know. Um, but uh, more importantly, in Hanoi, we get the Alfred Hommel Brewery. In 1890. Or maybe I'm totally wrong about the beer. <laughs> maybe. They have a capacity of about 150 litres a day. And again, so they're, they're just serving 
the French populace in in Hanoi. But um, what's what's their dispensing system like? Do they bottle these? They bottle. Fifty. Okay. Yeah, they're they're bottling. Um, however, as time goes on, this this new Vietnamese middle class that is evolving mm-hmm. um, during this time, they, they're starting to move to beer as well, seeing it as kind of a premium product, a little bit more than their local rice wines or rice spirits. This as, uh, harkens back uh, to the chicha episode. The chicha and uh, also the Korean episode. Yeah. There it's, yeah, so it's, the poop wine? it's, it's a novel. Hmm? The poop wine? No, 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 the North Korea. Oh. Like, <laughs> We've done know. a couple of Korean episodes now. Um, but yeah, it's, it's new, it's novel, and it's seen as a bit more of a higher class thing to be drinking drinking beers. And is it also one of those um, incursions from like the Western civilized world? So it's uh, already like a fancy new brewery. Well, yeah, basically. Stain- it's all copper, copper. Yeah. It's, it's, all, it's all imported equipment. Again, the, by Vietnamese independence in the late 1950s, Hommel's Brewery is transferred to the state as Hanoi Brewery. Hanoi Hommel's Brewery, Brewery becomes Harbeco, which uh, as opposed to Sabeco being the southern mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Saigon mm-hmm. Brewing Company, Harbeco the Hanoi Brewing Company. Right. Um, it's the majority owned by the state, the Ministry of Industry, and currently a very small percentage of it is owned by Carlsberg. Okay, um, so it's still state owned. Yeah. yeah, it's it's still majority state owned. What's their What's their milkshake IPA policy like? <laughs> like statewide? Well, not not so much at uh, Hanoi Brewing, but uh, certainly uh, Pasteur Street Brewing. They they get into some. Uh, but the, a lot of those, I imagine, uh, are still like expat owned. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think Pasture Street is American-owned. I, I did meet a guy who had been working for, I believe, Harbeco, and he has a brewery called Seacraft, mm-hmm. and that was kind of a wild... Th- he, he had all of these weird doppelbox that were just fruited differently. They were all incredible, but it was all like local fruit. There was like the pineapple doppelbock. There was the... Uh, jackfruit. The jackfruit doppelbock, the banana doppelbock. And I thoroughly enjoyed those beers. I had a great time. most uh, it was, it was doppelbocks, banana. They're a banana adjacent. They do have banana characteristics. But this also had banana. Mm-hmm. And apparently in the mash. I did specifically ask him how he added the banana. And he said, in the mash. Which we- sounds like a nightmare. We're recording this one week before the annual Italian Italian Craft Beer Weekend. And I got pretty angry at the beer list the other day because everything is vanilla, lactose, uh, pastry, so-and-so. You've got milkshake fatigue. I got milkshake fatigue. I've heard from our listeners that for how often I reference milkshake IPAs, a lot of them tend to think that I'm that actually a really massive into fan. Them? <laughs> uh, this, is, this is all tongue-in-cheek so hard. You're that saying it's it like, ironically. Oh, just like how you wear Crocs. My tongue is in my cheek so hard that it looks like I have a tumor. You know, banana. I'm, it's super underutilized in mm-hmm. beers. Mm-hmm. It's not easy to use in beers. And so when I saw a banana beer on the list... I was like, oh, banana sour, hell yeah, this sounds fascinating. And then it's like, oh, with cocoa and cacao and vanilla. And it's like, fuck, why? <laughs> it's got everything. Well, yeah, why, why not just stop? Well, um, 
to, to bring us back to uh, the beer hoy, finally, um, like we found out in our previous episode and several episodes before that, uh, beer hoy is born out of war. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time of the Vietnam War, or I think in this instance, since we're talking from the Vietnamese perspective, we can call it the American War. Ooh. Uh, I've, oh, I've, again, been to Vietnam and I did, I did go to some of the museums and I, I saw much to the disdain of American tourists that it, Actually, is, I, it is referred to as the American I War. I 100% agree. Mm-hmm. Much like currently we're not in the Ukrainian War, it's the Russian War of Aggression mm-hmm. Against Ukraine. That tracks... Yeah. yeah, I'm. I'm now a no longer Vietnam War. It's the American War. American yeah, there, there War were there were plenty of uh, there were plenty Vietnam. of tourists in those uh, in those museums who weren't really happy seeing the consequences of America's actions on on display. Oh, the consequences of my actions. But um, by by the time that we're in the American War, uh, rice is being pretty heavily rationed. As sure. a, it's a staple food. Um, Ho Chi Minh actually says that uh, making rice wine during this kind of famine mm-hmm. is essentially drinking the blood of your brothers. So he puts heavy restrictions on on the the production of rice wine. I mean, that is like some gaslighting mastery of next level. Like, what, what do you mean? Sorry, guys. We need to eat. We need to eat. So let's go sparingly on the rice. It is like drinking the blood of your brother. I don't know brother. if that's gaslighting. I don't, I feel, I don't I feel know. Like they, would, they really needed that rice for food. But it's like <laughs> setting it the more, most manipulative... Uh, yeah, I guess so. But it's it, not, it is It's like, good old like aggressive, aggressive. No, you're crazy. Like we fucking need this rice. And it's yeah. like drinking your... The, and it, Unborn it, it, it takes, babies. It takes so much more rice to produce rice wine and rice spirits than it does to just eat. For sure. But we also just in the last episode discussed how alcohol is super important to keep the morale up. Not only in soldiers, but also in civilian populations. Well, alcohol is not restricted. Rice wine and rice spirits are restricted. And that's okay. going to be important to My the My bad. Then production. I got off on a <laughs> <laughs> angry tangent for yeah, no you, reason. Yeah, you really, really gave it to Ho Chi Minh there. Um, <laughs> al- along, with, uh, along with the rice shortages, there's also obviously a shortage of metal and glass. Mm-hmm. Um, so bottles and cans kind of give way to just reusable kegs. Sure. Barley, however, as we've once discussed in the uh, North Korean episode. Not a big staple not, crop. Not a staple grain. So barley was kind of cheap and uh, it was available in quantities to produce beer. Hmm. So with all of these reusable What's cakes, the incentive to grow that anyway? Because if no one really eats it or uses it well, much? I imagine the, most of this is coming from China. Is it like for feed? It's apparently for beer. Well, they repurposed <laughs> it in for beer well uh beer hoy is kind of born out of this uh beer hoy translates to fresh beer and uh one of the stories that you will often hear from backpackers is that it's brewed fresh daily i have some questions about that because yeah uh, no yeah like the track yeah 
There seems to be an assumption that the keg of beer that arrives in the afternoon is the beer that's brewed in the morning. As a professional brewer, in my humble opinion, I don't really see any conceivable way that you can brew a beer in the morning and have a drinkable product by the afternoon. I absolutely love that you gave some validity to it uh, by like re-emphasizing how professional of a brewer I you am are. I am a professional brewer. You are. And I, I, I'm not disputing that at all. I ju- I'm just saying that it kind of feels like superfluous well, to yeah. <laughs> say it as my humble, super professional lead brewer opinion at uh, Estonia's most successful brewery, I say <laughs> baloney. <laughs> While anyone with like any working understanding, anyone that's not even homebrewed once, but been homebrew adjacent would understand this is some uh, well, so voodoo you say magic. That, but apparently a bunch of people don't understand that and and the what's their quake situation like there not great it sounds like you could maybe do grain to keg in like a few days with a quake but well it does sound like it it is an incredibly fast turnaround and a lot of things uh seem to be sacrificed in order to get this beer out what's the abv on those they generally range from about 2.5 to 3%. Mm-hmm. So they are very low gravity. They're very low ABV. Um, they tend to not be hopped a whole lot. Mm-hmm. They tend to not have a great deal of carbonation. Mm-hmm. And it sounds that the kegs are delivered immediately after filling. Mm. Now, they're not really intended to be stored. They're also clearly the, not really intended to be consumed, or they shouldn't be. Well, we'll, we'll get around to that. But um, When I was asking about diarrhea earlier, I think I have my answer. Well, um, so they, they don't even tend to use CO2. But this is, this is a very, very quick process. And you will, if, if you have been to Beer Street, you will probably see at uh, the time of day when it is, you know, the opening of Beer Hoy time, that motorbikes stacked with a ridiculously large amount of kegs that absolutely a motorbike shouldn't be carrying will just be dropping these things off. But you said they produce 150 liters a day. No, in 1890, that brewery okay. produced. Okay, oh, my bad, my bad. I was like, oh, that's not a lot of kegs. Uh, these, these breweries don't tend to be the large breweries. Mm-hmm. And we will, we will come to that. But um, yeah, so this... This beer is not intended to be stored. It's intended to be drank on the day that it's kegged. It's mm-hmm. put in, it's sent out. Whatever's not drank is generally poured down the drain at the end of the day. Large, yeah, large breweries don't really produce it. It's, it's left to a lot of smaller guys and sure. it's highly unregulated. So yes, a lot of questions of safety do come up in, in the production of Has there been like a Pombay type of situation see as far as we know no there hasn't actually been a pombe situation that in my research i could not actually find a recorded case of someone being sick as a direct connection to be ahoy other than the obvious is a little bit embarrassing so they don't report it and <laughs> even if they die of dehydration because of their wicked diarrhea they their families are 
a little ashamed of saying that they're they literally shit their guts out and died. Well, so as as we've brought up in the past, there's, there's a there's a, a strange dichotomy of this as we we talked about you know in the uh, Corona episode, we talked about in the Pombay episode that there tends to be a Western idea that a lot of things in in these parts of the world are inherently unsanitary or unsafe. And it does have a little bit of a a racial component to it. And our white asses have done multiple episodes discussing these things while trying to sort of like woke wash it a little bit. But at the same time, we've... You you told about what was it? One hundred and seventy-two people. Well, that's that's it, and that does run alongside the unfortunate fact that there is a alarming lack of regulation in a lot of food service around the world. I, I basically took off a coat of your woke washing because I I saw this way <laughs> the way this was yeah. going. Oh, well, and look, that that was in the in the instance of the the Mozambique funeral poisoning. Some grain was stored incorrectly and, yeah, 170 people... Oh, actually, I think it was 80 people that died. All right. But uh, 170 people got, got incredibly ill and caused a national crisis. Sure. But in this I case remember. specifically, there is, there is not a recorded case of someone directly linking their sickness to, to Beer Hoy. And it is, it is incredibly popular. Easy. And uh, amongst locals, obviously... And amongst backpackers. One more piece of beer hoy culture that, um, that is uh, still prevalent today, despite being born in, um, shall we say, turmoil or uh, a, a lack of, a lack of uh, resources. Amidst a lot of human suffering. Amidst a lot of human suffering is the, uh, the beer hoy glass. And the beer hoy glass is kind of insisted on that this is the correct vessel to drink your your beer hoy from. It's a it's originally based on a design by a guy named Lee Hoi Van, uh, who was the head of the city of Hanoi's industrial technical department, hmm. and uh, he was tasked with coming up with a cheap and effective way to produce glasses. Sure, and this meant that there was a lot of recycling. Uh, these glasses still tend to be handmade. They don't have a universal color. They not necessarily clear. Uh, they can be greenish hues. They can be brownish hues, depending on the glass that's used to basically reproduce them. Right. Uh, there's very little uniformity. They're often full of imperfections. Um, if but you take at least a look the, at the shape glass, is similar. The shape is similar. They tend to be a, a 500 mil ridged glass. Uh-huh. Kind of like a kind of like a cocktail glass. They have sure. the they have the uh, semicircle ridges. Is it the, uh, like ornamental or is it just part of the process? I believe the semicircles are ornamental. Okay. But the small bubbles. If if you take a take a look, yeah. I'll, I'll try and find some pictures as well. That uh, small air bubbles imperfections do tend to be mm-hmm, throughout mm-hmm. the glass. Um, Despite any new technology in glassware production, Hanoians still gravitate towards this glass. And right now there's only a handful of family-owned factories that still hand-make beer hoy glasses to supply Hanoi. Whoa. And this is an intrinsic part of Hanoi culture. What's their output? The glasses? Yeah. 
I couldn't find an exact number on how much they're able to. Imagine they break a lot of them. I'm sure they break a lot. Backpackers. Yeah. Not not uh, great people to have either. By the way, throughout the episode, I've been considering like, should I change my opening greeting from ahoy hoy to beer hoy? A beer hoy. A beer hoy. Kind of tracks, doesn't it? 